Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hey guys, welcome back to Just a Girl in True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven, and tonight we're going to be talking about a man named Thomas Warren Wisenhant. <clears throat> we're going right down through our serial killer list that I said we were going to be doing. Obviously, he's a serial killer. He killed three ladies named Venora Hate, Patricia Hilt. And Sherilyn Payton, and she was age 22. The murder of the methods was shooting with a .32 caliber pistol. The date of the murders occurred from 1975 to 1976. He was charged with kidnapping, rape, and mutilation. Sorry if I pronounce anything wrong. I am trying to get better, but you guys know how I am. So in this one, this case specifically, we're going to be talking about his home life, how his, um, how his home life was basically like I normally do, and how strange of a relationship he had with his mother and everything as well. Um, we're going to talk about some appeals, some habeas corpus and stuff like that his you know last meal all that stuff he was actually put to death in may 27th of 2010 as well so this guy is no longer alive and he kicked the bucket so let's begin because this is a big one and i got all my information from murderpedia.org it's an amazing site. You can find a lot on ser- some serial killers. Some are smaller than others, but this one's pretty big. I'm going to be referring to him as Thomas or as I guess it was a nickname, Tommy. Okay? So, convicted serial killer Thomas weighed less than five pounds in 1948. 1940- 47 when he was born into a poor family the household was ruled by his domineering mother named emma and she would often physically attack her weak and alcoholic husband and she also encouraged her children to do the same more than 30 years later in 1977 thomas's sister named evelyn stevens 
did testify at his capital murder trial. She told jurors from the day that her baby brother came home to their white-framed house on Clark Street until, until he was nearly seven years old. He slept in the same bed with his mother. And until he was 16, Evelyn said that Thomas shared a room with his mother, but not the bed. And it's known that Thomas resented his mother. A psychiatrist named William Rudder testified in court. I think he was afraid of her, which if she was doing that abuse to the father, I could see why he was afraid, right? <clears throat> and each of the women who actually died at Thomas's hands, they were mother substitutes, kind of. According to the testimony of, according to the testimony of another psychiatrist named Claude Brown, the victims were direct reper representatives of his mother who were annihilated by him in order to maintain his own existence. After Emma gave birth to Tommy, or Thomas, her fourth and last child, she ended whatever sexual relationship she had with her husband, never again allowing him into her bed. Often drunk on moonshine, he... He bought down the street, so I'm, that's what it says. He bought a house down the street, I'm assuming. But sometimes Willie, the father, would sneak in, sneak in on his wife, and he would try to seduce her. And this is all from what the sister is testifying to. And she said the house would erupt. She said her mother screaming, you know, saying, Willie, go back to bed. Leave me alone. I told you to leave me alone. And sometimes Emma urged both children to pummel their father with shoes or other objects. When Willie worked, which wasn't often, his wife would go through his billfold and she would find a paycheck to make sure it was the exact amount he gave her. And if it wasn't, she would fuss on him, so you stole it. And he would tell her that he had to pay so-and-so, like union dues. My daddy really had to steal his own money to get everything, to get anything, I'm sorry. When sober, Willie was relegated to household chores. Evelyn said her father washed nearly every dish that was washed in that house. And when he wasn't drunk... So when he wasn't drunk, he was, he was doing stuff like that. But when he was drinking, he really didn't do much of anything. There would be terrible rows between her parents, Evelyn said as well. Her father usually got the worst of it, and she can remember a lot of times when her dad was all bruised up, and she said, I can remember many times she would tell her mom... Um, basically just, you know, please just leave him alone. 
come back and leave him alone, but you know, she always told us your daddy keeps you from having anything because he drinks all the time. And she was convinced that that was the case, and she always defended her mom. Emma's wrath apparently was reserved for her husband only. Toward her youngest son, Evelyn said she was very overprotective, and she wouldn't really let him enjoy himself. Um, off topic real quick. Did you guys ever read the book, um, A Child Called It by David Pesler? This is kind of what it reminds me of to a certain extent like the alcoholic father except all but except her being like this overprotective parent to David where she would put him through terrible abuse and everything kind of reminds me of that because she you know did all that but Emma was doing this to her husband Evelyn's testimony um, basically made it out to be that this relationship between mother and son in which the mother saw it saw to it that her baby boy was never at fault and whose wishes were never denied kind of like my children like my children i think are the most perfect angels in the world i i know they're not but in my eyes they can't do no wrong His sister said that when he grew into a teenager and obtained a car, his mother would go with him to buy gas, and she just did not let him out of her sight. He got in trouble, and Per Richard, I think that's how you pronounce it, or it's Pry Richard, not sure, and after that, she got worse until Thomas was about 12 years old his sister said he was a mild child he wasn't mean but she said that he changed into a moody often violent young man who sometimes even turned on his mother Emma had a withered arm from her childhood um, mishap and that's what Evelyn said and you know she said she saw him grab her arm, and it was held every day at their house. Evelyn also said that one night in 1963, she was making candy when she heard what sounded like a backfire of a car, but it actually turned out to be a gunshot. An elderly woman had been killed. The police, or lawmen, found, a, found the murder weapon, in an empty lot next to the family home and Thomas was an instant suspect by then he and the police you know they had some history they believed that he was involved with several purse snatchings and minor assaults on young girls among other crimes and mischief but he was never actually formally charged with those offenses they came to the door and asked how long Thomas had been there and her dad would say that he had been there all night and Evelyn said you know recalling to the shooting that happened she just went along with what her mom and dad said and that he was there but that didn't seem like the case obviously the officers took Thomas away and the police 
reported later that the teenager was exceedingly indifferent about the death of the 72-year-old woman. Now, they didn't say her name, but I don't know if it was like one of the two victims that I said earlier, they didn't say a name. So then a family minister went to the jail, and he later told Evelyn that her brother was a very sick young man. And Stephen, or Evelyn, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use her last name, said that she returned home and she related the minister's words to her mother. What do you want to do? What do you want me to do? And she said her mother responded by this. I don't have any money. I don't know what to do. And so she did nothing. The police captain testified in court years later that his department recommended that Thomas get psychiatric help, but the mother and father basically shooed that idea away. They didn't think there was anything wrong with their son, the officer said, and that was that. They totally disregarded what the police had to say. Since then, experts had weighed in on Thomas's state of mind and whether the acts against his victims signified mental illness. Most agreed that while the attacks were likely related to what was described as Thomas's markedly abnormal childhood, he was aware of his actions when committing the crimes. Brown, a mobile psychiatrist, suggested that Thomas was coddled, petted, and spoiled throughout his youth, simply never, and he simply never matured into a man. Brown said that in the demands, Thomas's mother made him share her bedroom with no sexual implications apparent. One sees there the top of the iceberg, the iceberg being the massive overprotection of this individual and the massive clinging mutually child to mother and mother to child his dependency on his mother was engineered by her brown said she was a tyrant and a despot on the other side of that dependency is remorse no one one expert suggested normal children come to know that they are no longer fixtures in their mother's nest thomas learned this only with very little fragments, like with pain, and never completely as they speculated. According to Brown, the emotional and psychological maturity that naturally occurs in children as they grow was in Thomas Quelched, I believe that's how you pronounce that, don't come at me, not sure, by his mother's total domination. Willie, due to his alcoholism and his meekness and his inability to rise above himself or his bullying wife, was a non-entity. As a functional male model, he was non-existent, Brown said. Thomas's attitude towards his father, Brown said, hinged on his perception that whatever was dished out to the old man as kind of a degraded object was in reality dished out to the sun. And this is what Thomas has forever felt about himself. On one night, 
I'm sorry, on the night he killed his last victim, following a birthday party for his daughter, Thomas dropped his mother off at the same Clark Street home where she reared him. Within hours, he had kidnapped, raped, and shot a 23-year-old convenience store clerk. And the record showed that neither money nor sex appeared to be driving forces behind the slayings. Thomas admitted raping only one of the six women he is known to have attacked the last. And other than a wristwatch, he had, re he had removed from the mutilated body in April 1976 and gave to his wife as a present. He took nothing else from his victims but their lives and some of their body parts. Revenge of passion also did not play a part, the medical experts suggested. He did not know his victims, and once he had them under his control, he hardly spoke to them at all. One psychiatrist said that Thomas's acts against two of the women were done with no words, so in silence, on an infantile even pre-speech level. After they were dead, he spent hours cutting up their bodies as he idly sat smoking menthol cigarettes and drinking beer, almost certainly in silence. Once behind bars, Thomas's compulsions apparently did not die overnight, if they ever did. One of Thomas's jailhouse visitors reported seeing pictures of Playboy models in the inmate's possession these slick paper images, like two of his victims, have been sliced and disfigured. Prosecutors have always agreed that Thomas's childhood environment could not have been healthy, was abnormal even, but also argued that he is not the first child reared in a dysfunctional family. And Brown fully acknowledged that many health-functioning members of society grew up poor, endured alcoholic parents, and withstood the often influences of overprotective mothers. The logical conclusion to such childhood circumstances is not the murder and mutilation of women, prosecutors said. Brown was once asked during a cross-examination, would you say in Mobile County a lot of folks or some folks just for economic reasons sleep in the same room with their mother from the time that they were small infants until they were teenagers yes brown replied there is no record of thomas being sexually or physically abused by either of his parents brown was one of the medical expert to declare that thomas suffered a, from temporary insanity when he killed and mutilated but otherwise, Brown acknowledged Thomas functioned normally. As for getting answers from Thomas himself, nobody ever could. He, repe he repeatedly told investigators shortly after his arrest for the murders of his last victim that he didn't know why he did. Oh, he didn't know why he did what he did. He even asked them why. Psychiatrists who later interviewed him reported he became annoyed and clammed up when they broached the killings and mutilations, so he just clammed up. He just stopped talking. 
He wasn't one of them serial killers that boasted, said, oh yeah, let me tell you what I did. No, he shut down completely. Ultimately, experts like Brown and others were never in a position to offer more than speculation on why Thomas murdered his victims, much less explain why he mutilated two of them. But six months before Thomas was caught, investigators released a psychological profile on their suspect. The killer, according to the profile, was weak, powerless, timid, and a and fearful a nobody who discovered he could reverse those feelings when controlling someone else focusing on the horrific condition of the first mutilated body the profile pr predicted the murderer would turn out to be a man who grew up with a weak father and a domineering mother Unfortunately, Thomas's father did not live long enough to hear of his son's criminal acts, at least the final ones. He died while Thomas was serving time in a federal prison for attempted murder of a young U.S. Air Force WAF. At his death, Willie was still married to the woman who, for more than 40 years, had battered and degraded him. As for Emma, on the other hand, she died in 1984, and she lived long enough to see her son, um, you know, torn apart by society and condemned to die for his grisly crimes. And to see the bizarre relationship she shared with him exposed to the world. She often visited her son while he was on death row. Until her death, she lived in the same Clark Street home where the killer was born and raised and what she made of Thomas's, you know, crazy acts she never publicly revealed. And now we're going to talk about him on death row. Alabama's long-serving death row inmate was executed by lethal injection on Thursday before Thursday for the 1976 kidnap, rape and murder of the young convenience store clerk. One of three killings that once terrorized the mobile area. Thomas was 63. He died at 6.20 p.m. at Holman Prison near Atmore. He didn't offer any last words. But he did appear to pray briefly beside a man named Brian Eskalinen, chaplain at a nearby Fountain Correctional Institution, Brian knelt down beside Thomas and said a few words. After that, Thomas closed his eyes and he stopped moving. Thomas filed no request for a stay as the 6 p.m. execution drew near. I don't really know what that means. Um, so, court records show that Thomas, then 29, confessed to killing Sherilyn Payton and two other convenience store clerks in similar fashion. He also confessed that he had mutilated the body of Peyton and one of the other victims. To, he avoided execution for more than three decades because of the prosecution errors, and he had ses successful paroles. I'm sorry, not successful paroles, successful appeals. Several of Peyton's relatives, including her husband, Richard Peyton, witnessed the execution. 
Through many trials, retrials, appeals, and excuses, our family has endured an enormous heartache and severe suffering, said Susan Ann Payton, a family member of the victim, in a prepared statement read to reporters after the execution. Family members said watching the quiet execution did not make them feel better. He showed no remorse. He wouldn't even look at us, said Vivian Cheryl's um, mom, who held a picture of Cheryl during the news conference. There comes a time when everyone says it's over, but it's never over, said Ken Curry, a son of Venora, another woman that Thomas confessed to killing. Thomas's attorney, Richard Cohen, thanked prison officials after the execution for handling the procedure in a humane way, but he said Thomas was a psychotic, paranoid, schizophrenic. We should not execute anyone who is seriously mental ill, and that's what his lawyer said. Court records showed that Thomas was arrested after he had returned to a wooded area where he had left Peyton's body, and it was spotted by a farmer. Thomas tried to escape the area in his pickup. Eventually, he eventually abandoned his truck, and he ran into the woods. Thomas's wife came to the scene and used a loudspeaker to encourage him to surrender. Upon hearing her voice, Thomas yelled, I've done everything they said I did, the court record showed. At the time he was arrested in Mobile, Thomas was on parole for assault on a woman that occurred while he was in the Air Force. Prison officials said that he on he had been on death row for 32 years, 8 months, and 26 days, longer than any condemned inmate in the state. Prison spokesman Brian Corbett said Cohen was among Thomas's visitors Thursday and that the inmate gave a friend Maria Tillman his personal possessions including a 13-inch black and white television, a Bible, a radio, a watch, two packs of cigarettes, and a check for $96.94. Thomas declined to eat breakfast Thursday morning, but later in the day he requested a final meal of chicken leg quarters, french fries, American cheese, orange drink coffee, and chocolate pudding, Corbett said. And now we are going to talk about we're going to talk about some appeals. And this is a direct appeal and it's Thomas versus State 370 SO.D21080 Alabama CRAPP 1979 direct appeal. Defendant was convicted in the circuit County, um, Circuit Court, Jefferson County, Farrell D. McRae J. of capital murder and sentenced to death, and he appealed. The Court of Criminals Appeals, Harris P.J. held that one evidence presented at the sentence, sentencing hearings was sufficient to negate present of 
mitigation circumstances that offense was committed while defendant was Mm -hmm. under influence of extreme mental or emotional disturbance to defense motion to allow no death qualifications to be asked was properly denied three statue govern governoring one for one strike for jury selection in jefferson county was not or applied to defendant whose case was transferred to said county on motion to change for venue for prosecutors pre prejudicial and reckless remarks repeated interjecting issue of consequences of verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity were highly improper thus requiring reversal and five there was a false variance between indictment charging defendant with rape and intentional killing and judgment finding defendant guilty of capital murder reversed and remanded book out j concurred specifically in filed option and this is what it says the evidence presented presented tended to show the following facts trislo testified that he lived on two mile road in Iverington, Alabama, in Mobile County on October 16th in 1976. Lona's fiancé stopped at the compact store on Sweetown Road at approximately 8.30 p.m. There he saw Miss Payton, who identified, whom he identified in two f- photos, previously introduced and bought two cold drinks. Lowe returned to the store at 10 o'clock that evening at that time, no one was in the store and no vehicles were in the parking lot. Lowe Lo saw a Coke machine open with keys in the lock and a broken six-pack of Coca-Colas on the floor with a mop and a bucket nearby. Lowe then identified four photographs of the store to which defense counsel stated that he had no objection to their being omitted in evidence and they were omitted. When Lowe found the store empty, he attempted to use the payphone outside. However, the receiver was tore up. Lowe also noticed a Miller pony inside the phone booth. I don't know what that is. Using the telephone in the store, Lowe summoned the police and remained at the scene until sheriff deputies arrived. Gary Risher testified that he was a resident of Spring Hill and Mobile in October 1976. On Sunday, October 17, 1976, Risher and his friend George were hunting on the land of Ed Trippy in Alabama. And Gary then identified three photographs in the area and defense counsel stated that he had no objection to their to them basically basically being introduced into evidence and they were admitted. Approximately at 6 p.m., Gary and George saw a man standing slightly off the roadside watching them drive towards him. George called the man over to the car and asked him what he was doing out there, to which the man replied that he was walking around. Then thinking that the man was out night hunting, 
George told him. Well, we know what you're doing here. George only repeated that statement when the man asked what he had meant by that. The man then walked on the direction of Highway 90. On the Monday evening, Gary identified the man in, man in a lineup at the Sheriff's Department. Of the six-man lineup, Gary identified the man whom he and George had seen on Ed Tripp's landing the night before. Reisinger also identified in court the same man. George testified that he was a resident of Alabama in Mobile County, and George's testimony paralleled that of Gary's. Charles Edwin Tripp Sr. testified that he lived in Iverington, Alabama, that's where all this is occurring, in Mobile County, where he farmed about 5,000 acres of land. Holy hell, that's a lot. On Sunday evening in October 1976, Gary and George notified Tripp that they, that they had seen someone on his property, and Charles drove down to the plot where the man had been seen, and on Monday, October 18th in 1976, he parked his car, and when Tripp walked out into the field, he discovered the body of a woman clad only in knee-high stockings and blue in a blue denim shirt. There were no cuts on the body, and that's when Charles, Charles then reached his house in five minutes, and he called the law. He met investigating officers at the south end of North Gulf Boulevard 10, fi 10 to 15 minutes later. When Charles returned to the field with the officers, the body was gone. However, drag marks were leading away from the spot, and Charles and the officers followed the marks, discovering the body into a thickened and covered with boards. At this time, Charles observed cuts on the body, and Charles identified two pho photographs of the victim. A cartoon of Miller beer in pony bottles was near the victim's head. While waiting for officers at the North Gulf Boulevard, Charles had seen a white pickup truck on the road. Charles identified a photograph of the white pickup truck as the same vehicle he had saw that day. Defense counsel, having stated that he had no objection to the photograph, the picture was admitted into evidence. Charles described the driver of a truck as having long, long curly-like reddish-brown hair in a famancha mustache probably pronounced that wrong at the trial appellant was clean shaven and his hair was neatly cut Charles further testified that the body was found you know into the thicket one officer had gone to the police vehicle to use the radio at this time Charles saw the same truck coming back down the road the vehicle stopped turned around and took off real fast one officer remained at the scene with Charles while the other undertook pursuit of the speeding vehicle Charles identified the man as the driver of the truck on cross-examination defense counsel introduced into evidence two colored photographs of the vehicle I'm sorry, not vehicle victim. Richard Lee 
Breyers testified that he was a deputy sheriff in the Mobile County Sheriff's Department, and on Monday, October 18th, same year, Richard was organized to ser- organized a search party of volunteers when the deputy <clears throat> Tillman received a phone call between 10.30 and 10.45 a.m. Richard and Tillman then proceeded to the North Gulf Boulevard in Iverington, Alabama, where they met Charles. Richard and his partner then followed Charles to a field where they discovered the body. Richard observed a pool of blood in the spot where Charles said he had first seen the body, and the body was discovered in Mobile County. Larry Tillman testified that he was was a detective sergeant in the Mobile County Sheriff's Office on the morning of October 18th, and Tillman was assisting the or the organization of the search party to locate Cheryl Lynn Payton, who was missing. After receiving a call from the chief investigator, D. Riggers, Tillman and Richard and met Ed at the south end of the North Gulf Boulevard. Three men, tra- the three men traveled down the dirt road approximately one half a mile where Charles stopped and the body of Cheryl was located. The officer then sent dispatch to the sheriff's office, and while still on the radio, he saw in his rearview mirror the front end of a pickup truck stopped at the top of the hill a quarter mile down the road. When the truck turned around, Tillman pursued it, sending out dispatch relating his actions. The chase continued at speeds, from 80 to 100 miles per hour until the truck crashed through an electrical fence and wrecked into a clump of woods. The driver of the truck jumped out of the vehicle and ran into the woods. Tillman then identified five photographs of the truck, which were introduced in evidence without objection by the defense counsel. After the truck wrecked, the area was surrounded by 20 20 police officer officer vehicles and the chief investigator took charge of the situation. An an identification check revealed that the truck was registered to Thomas. Tillman sent for Thomas's wife and when she arrived she spoke to him through a public system in a police car asking Thomas to come out. He then shouted, Baby, I have done everything they said I did. Tillman and Driggers and his wife walked to the woods, then finding Thomas standing unarmed amongst the trees. Thomas then told Tillman, You SOBs, I am going to make you kill me. At that time, Tillman walked up to Thomas and handcuffed him, and he was led out of the woods and placed into a police car. On cross-examination, Tillman testified that he, District Attorney Gradick, and Mr. Baker began interrogating Thomas at the Sheriff's Office approximately an hour after he was apprehended. During the interrogation, Thomas also admitted that he had killed Verana, whom he had also abducted from a small convenience store. Defense counsel then introduced in evidence as introduced in evidence a photograph of the store which 
she had worked and her body was discovered. We're talking about Venora at this point, and it was discovered near a side of an old house covered by vines at the intersection of Halls Mill Road and Higgins Road. Defense counsel then introduced into evidence several photographs of the scene and the body of her. That murder, that murder occurred almost six months to the day before Cheryl was killed. Before in interrogating Thomas, he was given, you know, the Miranda rights, the warnings, and he responded that he understood his rights. Then began a question and answering session that covers more than 40 pages in transcripts. Sometime later, there were there was another interview with Thomas prior to which he was again given his Miranda rights and warnings. This was another question and answer session which covered numerous pages of transcripts. Both of these interviews were introduced into evidence by Thomas's counsel and read to the jury. It will serve no useful purpose to set out in full these two confessor confesses statements and it would serve only to overextend this opinion the entire episode can be summoned by best quoting up summed up by quoting up the brief of thomas's counsel and this is what was said on october 16 1976 thomas the defendant thomas abducted Sherilyn payton from a compact store in mobile county where she worked as a clerk he drove to her he drove her to a secluded wooded error area and I always I see listen to a lot of people who have a hard time pronouncing rural mobile county raped her on the front seat of his pickup truck and then shot her in the head one time with the point thirty two pistol he used for the abduction. The murder took place in a field near the truck. He then dragged her body into the wooded area and then he left the scene. <clears throat> On October 17th in 1976, he returned to her body, cut off a large section of her breast, and slit her abdomen. He was observed near the crime scene and was captured shortly thereafter following a chase. When captured, the defendant freely gave de a detailed confession wherein he not only admitted killing and mutilating Miss Payton, but also killing and mutilating two other women in Mobile County during the previous 18 months. With evidence obtained from the defendant, law enforcement authorities verified the defendant's multiple mutilation confessions. All three, however, involved extensive mutilation of the dead bodies, and all three victims were unknown to the defendant. At trial, the defendant's counsel, in opening statement, readily admitted that the defendant had committed these three murder mutilations, and also told the jury that the defendant, at age 13, had killed an elderly woman. He also told the jury that the defendant had been previously tried and convicted of the brutal beating of a woman while he was in the Air Force. FN1, the record reveals that there was no mutilation on the body of one, 
of the body of the previous victims. He had gone into a compact store, shot and killed a clerk, left the store, and ret not returned to the murder scene. Officers found a knife laying on the seat of Thomas's pickup truck, and it was it was determined to be the knife that Thomas used to mutilate the body of Miss Payton. Also in the truck were a pair of jeans, panties, and a mini pad. Louis P. Driggers testified that he was the chief investigator for, you know, the criminal investigation division of Mobile County Sheriff's Department. And in November of 1975, he had gone to a, a compact store on Cottage Hill in Schillinger's Road in Mobile, Alabama, where he had found a body of Patricia Hitt, who had been shot in the forehead and killed. On October 18th in 1976, he also proceeded to the scene of a wreck of Thomas's truck and in his testimony concerning the apprehension and arrest of Thomas's is quite similar to that of Tillman's. Jim Small testified that he was a state toxicologist and that he had been employed by the State Department of Toxicology toxicology for 12 years. Defense counsel said that Small was an expert in his field and Small had many qualification, qualifications which were still established are not set um, are not set forth herein. On October 18th in 1976 Small went to the scenery of the discovery of Cheryl Payton Sherilyn Payton's body where they conducted an examination. Clutched in Miss Payton's hand was some grass similar that they had found near bloodstains 60 feet away. Her small accounted for this by reason was because of a spasm. A um, thing that occurs partic particularly with head wounds and is commonly seen in cases of suicide by gunshot. The state introduced two photographs that the hands of Miss Payton clasping grassy material and the hand of Miss Wyatt, which was introduced by um, which she grabbed like the vines that she was found in. Both of these occurrences of the spasms indicated a traumatic death. Upon examination of Cheryl, of Cheryl's body, Small, Small observed a large circular wound on, over her left breast where the nipple had been removed, a four-inch cut at the base of the left breast, and cut on the right abdomen an inch, ha a half-inch cut located on the inner margin of the right thigh and three-eighths inch cut located in the upper pubic region, four cuts inside the internal genitalia, two small lacerations on the back of the skull, and a quarter-inch diameter penetrating wound in the top of the head, which Small determined that the entrance wound by wound from gunshot. Apparently, the two small lacerations at the back of the head were caused by the use of a of some blunt instrument occurring before or immediately surrounding the time of shooting. 
Small further testified that he did not find the left nipple at the scene. Additionally, Small took swabs from the vagina, from the victim's vagina, mouth, anus, and stains noted on the leg and chest area. Florence's test resulted in a positive result for semen stains on swabs taken from the vagina. And the spermatozoa were immobile, indicating that there had been de- that they had been deposited there for at least ten hours. In Small's opinion, Miss Payton had been penetrated. Small determined determined the presence of blood in the crotch area of the jeans and panties, and on the sanitary napkins, which were all found in Thomas's truck. He also testified that he was present at the mobile infirmary where Dr. Brian Montgomery performed an autopsy on Miss Payton's body. A bullet which was recovered from the brain was determined through ballistics tests that that um, had been fired from the the .32 pistol Smith & Wesson. The bullet without object by defense counsel to its emission was received in evidence. Defense counsel further stipulated that Miss Payton's death was caused by the pistol and it was caused by Thomas. The knife found in Thomas's truck had no blood or tissue on it. No fingerprints could be raised from the beer carton found near her body or her head. Douglas Payton testified that he lived in Theodore, Alabama and that his wife, Sherilyn, who was 24 years old at the time, on October 20, 1976. He last saw his wife alive when he dropped her off at work at the store approximately 10 minutes before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. On that day, she was on her menstrual period and was wearing a sanitary napkin of the type that was admitted to evidence. Prior to dropping his wife off at the compact store on October 16th in 1976, Mr. Payton last had had intercourse with his wife two days before. Payton then identified a photograph that was his wife. The state rested at this point. Evelyn Stevens, Thomas's sister, was called as a first defense witness and she testified that Thomas had lived in Theodore, Alabama, but had moved to Ironton after he married. There there were his two older brothers in the family and he was the youngest child, like we stated. Thomas and his family were born and reared in Perbridge, Alabama, where their mother still occupied the same house and their father was when their father was alive he was an electrician and he worked various shipyards and mobiles when the you know we talked about like what happened between him and his mother how she was strict um his sister further testified that Stephen had convulsions one night when he was a baby and the family thought Thomas had died, but he was later revived. At that time, Thomas began school 
His mother was working at Cress's. After school, Thomas was kept by his grandmother, who Miss Stevens described as a domineering woman, woman who would stand Thomas in a corner and whip him for no reason. Oof. In high school, he never dated except once when he attended the senior prom. Thomas's mother kept any money that he had earned and would not let him out of her sight, like we said. When he got a driver's license, you know, she would go buy gas with him. Generally, as a child, he was very mild. He would often just sit and staring, but as he grew older, Thomas became very violent when his requests were not granted. And Evelyn saw, you know, her brother grabbing their mom by her arm several times. And she, he also started to get into trouble. Robert Norman, the minister of the church, which the, Tom, which the family attended, told the family that Thomas was in need of psychiatric help. However, you know, one of his brothers, older brothers, angrily claimed that the press, the police, were trying to blame something on an innocent boy. <clears throat> on October 16, 1976, Thomas's little girl was a year old, and he called his sister to invite her to a birthday party, and, you know, she said he seems to be the happiest she has ever seen him in a very long time. James testified that he was a retired captain at the police department while the while he was a detective in the force, he knew about Thomas, particularly Thomas, he knew very well. He encountered him over, you know, the purse snatching, and soon he picked him up on a murder charge. The elderly woman, seven years old, who lived on the same street as Thomas did, who was shot that one evening. Earlier, a pistol had been stolen from a house down the street where Thomas had been spending some time with some teenage friends. Bloodhounds led by James to they, the dogs led them to Thomas's home. However, you know, they claimed that he would, the family claimed he was home all night. And James, you know, came to regard that Thomas was a weirdo. And it passed through his mind that Thomas had something against women, which makes sense. Brian told his mom, Emma, and Evelyn that Thomas needed psychiatric help and they had better get him straightened up. The family responded by that by getting angry, saying that he was not crazy. As much at, the, at a much later time, Thomas's wife came out to James and told the police that James had told her he wanted to play a game with her to prove that he could outsmart police. And then Thomas placed a stocking around her neck and choked her until she blackened out or blacked out. After he persuaded her to write and sign a suicide note, James told Thomas that he had better straighten up. On cross-examination, 
James testified that before the elderly woman was killed, Thomas and his friends had been playing with the pistol, which had been so stolen prior thereto. Thomas had taken a bullet from the revolve revolver and marked an X on it and said, this bullet is going to kill somebody. Ooh, this is a lot. And this is actually going to be like two parts because this is a lot. And that is where we are definitely going to stop and everything like that. And I hope you enjoyed the first part of Thomas. And I hope to talk to you guys soon. I'm going to actually pre-record it so I can upload it tomorrow.